If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Um, we're going to start in verse 28 of chapter 18, and we'll end up in, ch- in verse 16 of chapter 19. We're going to look at the trial of Jesus with uh, pa- Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Okay, If you have one of our black Bibles, it's on page 961. Now this section, we've been in John's gospel for quite some time, and now we're moving into all of this preparation. The entire gospel of John has been leading up to these last few chapters where Jesus has not just come to, to be a good teacher, he's not just come to be a, a rabbi and, and, and sort of uh, buck the, the, uh, the system that's already in place. He has come to die for his people's sins and to not only die, but to rise from the grave so that we might, as we put our trust in him, uh, have eternal life in him and the forgiveness of sins. All of the, every spiritual blessings that we just read about in Ephesians 1 before we sang those songs, right? This is what Christ has come to, to uh, purchase for us. And so um, we are now moving, we've moved out of the upper room and now we're moving into uh, a lot of action that's just gonna, uh, we're gonna even see today this, this pace is going to quicken because the, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders are so adamant that they want Jesus to die. They're going to do anything in their power in order to make that happen, okay? So um, chapter 18, verse 28 is where we'll start, page 961 in in, uh, our Bibles here. John's going to show us this morning, uh, 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 even though it looks like Pilate is sort of the main uh, character in this narrative, because he's in every scene. He's the only one that's in every scene in in this narrative. John's going to show us like he's always shown us that Jesus is really the true center of it all, right? And who he really is, is what John intends to show us yet again through this passage. This passage is full of irony, it's full of misunderstanding, it's full of people speaking more than they even realize. We've seen all of these things so far in John's gospel, and we're going to get sort of a concentrated version of all of this in this section this morning. And John employs all these devices to direct his readers then, which now includes us this morning, to consider what it really means for Jesus to truly be king, okay? And so to that end, I want to pray and ask for our king's help, and then we'll dig in uh, to this passage this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you that your word is truth, and we pray this morning that you would sanctify us by this truth, that your spirit would lead us into all truth and point us yet again to our need for Jesus, but not just leave us there. Point us to the provision, the ample provision, the sufficient provision that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. May we look to him. May we honor him as king, the righteous and good king, the sovereign king, the king of glory and grace. And may we be Uh, conformed more into his image through your word this morning. Together as your church, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever felt helpless, but but like didn't want anybody else to know? And, And so then you're doing whatever you can to sort of give the illusion that you still have control of whatever the situation is? Anybody want to raise their hand to that one? Nobody wants to, right? Because for the very reason I just talked about, right? We've all felt this way, right? We've all felt this, this sense of helplessness where we will admit it to ourselves, but we will admit it to no one else, right? And we'll, we'll even try to convince ourselves that, that what, what the reality is isn't really actually the reality. In this passage this morning, we're going to see a contrasting picture between one man who appears to be in control, but who ultimately is shown to be absolutely helpless, and another man who appears to be absolutely helpless, but will be shown in the end to be 100% in control, 100% in control. And we're also going to see this contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to I take our, our main point this morning, our, our main idea for this passage, and I want to phrase it in the form of a statement and in the form of a question. Okay, so here it is. First, the statement. Jesus is the only sovereign king. Jesus is the only sovereign king. Now the question, is he your king? Is he your 
king. Let's dig into this passage together this morning. John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. Now, John doesn't give us any details about Jesus' formal trial before Caiaphas. If we go back from where we were at in chapter 18 last week, we saw that he was interviewed or interrogated by Annas, who was sort of the, 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 um, the, the high priest that everybody uh, believed was still in office or, or the honorary high priest, if you will. And then he sent him over to Caiaphas, but we don't get anything else there. And now we're going from Caiaphas to the Roman governor. This, this governor here in verse 28 is Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman governor. And, and Jewish leaders and Roman leaders did not get along because Rome was the world superpower at the time. And, and, and the Jewish uh, nation of Israel wanted to be uh, autonomous and free because they were God's people, but yet they were under the Roman rule, right? And not only that, but Romans were like all other Gentiles to them, and they were ceremonially unclean. And so to come and bring Jesus to, to, to uh, uh, Pilate's headquarters, and then to go inside Pilate's headquarters would make them ceremonially unclean. And so they, they said, listen, we'll wait here, but you take him in there, okay? Now, The, the irony here is thick already. We're already getting into this irony, right? Because uh, they didn't, they made, th- these Jewish leaders were extra careful to make sure that they followed all the cere- ceremonial practices of the Passover festival or so that they could still participate in the Passover festival. They spent all that time and energy and effort making sure that they were ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean while at the same time, in their own defiled hearts, they also made all of this effort to then actually put to death the one that the Passover was about. The Passover lamb, the true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the firstborn son of God. The Passover was, was a celebration that, that, that uh, remembered and, and rejoiced in the fact that God rescued the people of Israel from slavery to Egypt and saved the firstborn from death. And now here are those Jewish leaders who are, are so concerned with the, the practice of remembrance are actually failing to see what's taking place here, that God has a greater deliverance in his true firstborn son, Jesus Christ, and the Passover lamb. They didn't want to be physically near the Roman governor, but in their defiled hearts, they were more than willing to form an unholy alliance with him if he gave them what they wanted. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told, him, told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Now, the fact that we saw last week that there were Roman soldiers at Jesus' arrest gives us an indication that Pilate had at least some sort of former knowledge of what the Jews were doing and actually then gave consent to that. And so when they brought Jesus to to Pilate, they thought, man, this is an open and closed case. We already have him on our side. But by asking that question, what charges do you bring against this man? Pilate then began his own uh, formal investigation into the matter. And now they had to go through all of those steps. So they're ticked. They're like upset. We we thought you were were just going to say, okay, right? And so they're yelling back at him. And, and, and they feel like he's uh, double-crossed them. Let's be clear, though, here. Pilate was not suddenly advocating for Jesus. He was antagonizing the Jews, okay? For his own enjoyment, for his own self-confidence, Pilate was an insecure and morally weak leader who tried to give the appearance of strength by ruthlessly toying with the people under his jurisdiction, mentally and physically, did whatever he wanted for his own amusement. He wasn't interested in arbitrating the Jews' religious grievances against Jesus. He doesn't care about the Jews' uh, religion. 
or their God. And so they pivoted and they decided to, to take the angle that Jesus was an offense against Rome. He was a political insurrectionist. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah he blasphemed God in their minds, but that's not going to fly with Pilate. And so we got to get something that he's interested in. How about a threat against Rome? That was a charge that carried the death penalty for anyone found guilty of it. Rome actually had revoked the Jews' right or ability to carry out their own capital punishment. And so they had then to convince Pilate to carry it out for them. Otherwise, it wasn't going to happen. They had to, to help him see that Jesus was a threat to Rome so that he would put Jesus to death if they had any chance of seeing Jesus actually die. But as the Jews and Pilate began their mental chess match, if you will, with one another, John reminds us that Christ is the king who cannot be put into checkmate. He's the one that's sitting there. He's the one that's remaining quiet while all of this is going back and forth, and he's fully in control. He's fully in control. He's, in fact, the king who's always in control. He's never not in control. I don't know how else to say this, but this is the thing we need to know inside and out. Jesus is always in control. He'd already said in chapters 3 and 8 and 12 that he must be lifted up. This was the language that he used with Nicodemus. This was the language that he used even with the, the Pharisees and the leaders. What does it mean for him to be lifted up? Well, it means to be put up on a cross, to be crucified. Jews stoned people to death. In fact, they tried to do it to Jesus a few different times in John's gospel, right? And every time he slipped away, they wanted to kill him based on their own law with their own method and they couldn't do it. But the Roman form of execution, capital punishment, was crucifixion. The fact that Rome had taken away the, the Jews' ability to carry out capital punishment is not happenstance. It's not happenstance. It's evidence of the sovereign hand of God ensuring that redemption would be accomplished exactly as he had planned it, not through stoning, but through crucifixion. If Jesus says, I have to be lifted up, then guess what? He's going to be lifted up. That's how he's going to lay his own life down. No one has the authority to take it from him. He said that too. The chief priest's refusal to go inside Pilate's headquarters then set this stage for the rest of our, our, our scene here, or multiple scenes, if you will, uh, for Pilate then to go in and question Jesus without the chief priest being able to listen. They had to stay outside and wait, right? So he had this opportunity then to go in and, and ask Jesus these questions. And this was also then in line with God's sovereign purposes because we were told again in chapter 12 that the chief priests, as a representative of all of Israel, fulfilled Isaiah, the prophet's uh, uh, prophecies and words that said they were hard-hearted and they were blind and they were refused to listen to the truth. And so... They ignored the truth in their unbelief, and now they would be unable to hear the truth as Jesus laid it out for Pilate. Let's keep going, verse 33. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking me this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? What have you done? Now, Pilate's question in verse 33 was a response to the chief priest's accusations that Jesus was a political insurrectionist. It's implied there. We don't read that. They have said that outright, but this is the implication. So he comes back in and, he, and he's like, wait, hold on. Are you the king? Like, are you, are you about to, to come and rebel against Rome? Is this what you're leading as an insurrection? But he, fr he framed it as, in this phrase as the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus knows there's multiple meanings behind that, right? We've talked about this before. We want to define our terms when we use them. And so Jesus essentially asked him, hold on, do you want to know if I'm a rebel? Or do you want to know if I'm the Messiah? Which one are you interested in? Because that's, that, that's going to depend on how I answer you. Pilate's like, I don't really care either way. What do I care? You're not my king. Doesn't matter if you're a rebel. Doesn't matter if you're the Messiah. 
I'm not a Jew. You're not my king. But I need to know if you have intentions against Rome. Pilate knew that the Jews hated being occupied by Rome, and he also knew that they wouldn't just hand over someone that they thought was capable of actually leading them out from under Roman rule, right? That, that would be like hamstringing themselves. He assumed that the chief priests had ulterior motives for handing Jesus over to him, and, so, and he thought that those, those motives were self-serving. He assumed that way. And so he wanted to know what Jesus did, uh, not so much as an offense against Rome, but actually as an offense against the chief priests. Like, what'd you do to get on their bad side? Why do they hate you so much? This is what he's trying to find out. And so Jesus then used that opportunity to tell Pilate, not about an ulterior motive, but about an ulterior kingdom. So let's keep reading verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then. Pilate asked, you say that I'm a king. The implication there is Jesus is saying, you're you're right in saying that I'm a king. I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Pilate said. Verse 37, Jesus essentially told Pilate, hey, you say that I'm a king and you're right. But then he clarified what kind of a king he was. I'm not a rebel. I am the Messiah. But here's what this means. First, you need to know about my kingdom. He was the king of a kingdom that was different than any other kingdom Pilate had ever known or experienced. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus told Pilate. And he wasn't saying that his kingdom didn't operate in the world. But what he was saying is that his kingdom did not operate on the same principles as the world's kingdoms. That's why last week when we saw them in the garden, Peter told, uh, or Jesus told Peter to put your sword away. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Peter, you cut that guy's ear off. Stop it, right? Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given to me? There's a greater kingdom at work here. Jesus didn't need Peter to fight and he didn't need anybody else to fight for him because his kingdom did not operate by force. Jesus' words in verse 36 essentially refuted the claim that the chief priests concocted as a way to try to get him killed by Pilate. They said he was an insurrectionist and Jesus essentially going, listen, I'm not a threat to Rome. Not in the way you think at least. It wasn't a political threat. But Jesus also made it clear that he was a king on a mission, right? The purpose of his incarnation, the purpose of him coming, God in the flesh, to the world was to reveal himself as the true king of the true kingdom who came to testify to the truth of who God is, to the truth of salvation, and the truth of judgment. John gave us this really great summary of that back in chapter 3. Do you remember this? Listen, verse 31 and 30, through 36 in John 3. The one who comes from above is above all. He's talking about Jesus, so what does he mean? He's the king, right? He's the king. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks on earthly terms. We see that in Pilate and the chief priests. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. He testifies to the truth. And yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true, just like Jesus said. Anyone who's of the truth listens to my voice, right? For the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and he's given all things into his hands. He's the king, he's the king. The one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The lights come into the world, but the world rejected in darkness because he came and the light has shown that the world's deeds are evil, right? This is all language John has used. Jesus has used in John's gospel. At the end of verse 37 here, Jesus told Pilate, everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Now he was inviting right there, Pilate, 
to lean in and know and believe this truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to me. Will you? That's the implication there. Pilate's question in verse 38, however, was not a genuine question of curiosity, like, okay, well, let me have it. What's the truth? It was instead a curt dismissal of Jesus' invitation. In his own insecurity, Pilate probably didn't want to know the truth out of fear that it would upend his own status, upend his own understanding, upend all that he knew and wanted to try to hold on to for himself. And this is a truth that we all need to pay attention to because the truth that Jesus testifies to is that all the kingdoms of the world are derivative kingdoms. They're copies of the original. They're not the original. They're imitations. And all the kingdoms of the world are marred by sin. That means that even the most upright system of governance on this planet is still a broken system. Why? Because all of us, whether we wear a physical crown or not, everyone in this world, including you and me, we want to be kings of our own kingdoms. We want to be kings of our own kingdoms. We want to govern ourselves. We want to really do what we want. But in the original kingdom, in the true kingdom that is not of this world, there's only room on the throne for one king. And that's Jesus Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is that this king, this king Jesus, does not make his people his subjects by force. Instead, he brings them into his kingdom by grace. Because this king cannot, uh, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This king, who's remained quiet until this little conversation with Pilate, knows exactly what he's doing. He's in complete control. Everyone who is of the truth listens to this king's voice. That means that Christ's followers are those who hear the truth of his word and believe it. We trust his testimony about himself, about the world, about everything else right here in his word. We, we proclaim, we don't just ask what is truth, we proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because he testified to that himself. We proclaim that, that the world, uh, though it tries, is not the author or originator of truth. We proclaim that this right here is truth because Jesus himself has testified in John 17, Father, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. Or sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So, Here's another question then. Are you of the truth? Are you listening to Jesus' voice? Do you believe his testimony? To dismiss what the Bible has to say about Jesus or about anything else is to echo the question that Pilate himself asked in dismissal. What is truth? It's right here. It's right here. The truth was right in front of Pilate and the truth is right in front of us and that truth points to a king who is holy but who is so gracious. So gracious. The chief priest didn't listen to Jesus' voice. Pilate chose ignorance over the truth but he still had to hand down a verdict about Jesus. He opened this investigation. He's got to follow through on it, right? So let's keep going. The rest of verse 38 here into 40. After he had said this, Pilate, <clears throat> he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. And then John gives us this note. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary after talking with Jesus, Pilate was convinced that Jesus was not the threat to Rome that the chief priests had made him out to be. And as the highest Roman official in Judea, in that region, Pilate's, Pilate's verdict in verse 28 should have settled the matter. I find no grounds for charging him. In other words, that, that's an official verdict, right? Pilate's saying, listen, he's innocent. We're done here. 
That's what he should have said. But Pilate was an insecure man who wanted to keep the peace and demonstrate his authority at the same time. And, and the Passover festival provided him with just the loophole he needed to do that, or so he thought. Although he wasn't personally concerned with the Jewish religion, Pilate participated in this custom of setting a Jewish prisoner free during the Pas Passover festival. Pilate would spare a Jew from death during the festival that celebrated God's sparing of the Jews from death. How do you think he thought that made him look? It was a win-win gesture in his mind. His generosity scored him brownie points with the Jews, the, at least the larger crowd of Jews that was there, maybe not with the chief priests, but he didn't like them and he felt perfectly comfortable antagonizing them. And so that was kind of the other win for him. He got to really push his thumb down on them and remind them who was in charge. He knew that the charges against Jesus were bogus, and so he stacked the odds in Jesus' favor, assuming that nobody in their right mind would ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus to be released. John tells us that Barabbas was a revolutionary. Your, your English translation might say, now Barabbas was a robber or an insurrectionist. The original language, it literally means one who seizes plunder. In the other Gospels, we're told he was a murderer. This man was viewed as a terrorist by Rome. And he was viewed as a national extremist by the Jews. They wanted to keep their distance from this guy. He was somebody who used force, and they didn't, they didn't want that because they, they wanted the Messiah to come and the Messiah to be the one that brings the sword. So there's, here's the options, right? Somebody who's actually guilty of insurrection or this man that you say is guilty but we all know isn't. Who do you want to release? And this is the irony, right? By choosing Barabbas, they were siding with the one that was actually guilty of the charges that they brought against Jesus who was perfectly innocent of everything. He wasn't a threat to Rome. He was a threat to them. And they wanted him dead. Pilate thought that he could maintain the upper hand and manipulate the Jews into dropping their case against Jesus, but he wasn't expecting the counterpunch, right? They, they, they had some manipulation of their own, and they backed Pilate into a corner, like, we can play this game. Let's go. You give us Barabbas. Now what are you going to do? Your move, Pilate. What would he do with the man that he knew posed no real threat to Rome but remained in his custody? While they're chanting, crucify him, crucify him. This man is deserving of death. Let's find out. Look at ver uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. <clears throat> Excuse me. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe. Purple is a color of royalty. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they were slapping his face. Now, all of this was happening behind closed doors in the headquarters. The Jews didn't get the pleasure of seeing this part. This was just for the Romans. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Here is the man here is the man. No. Pilate's first attempt to release Jesus was a colossal failure, right? He was sure that if he stood Jesus up next to a notorious criminal that the crowd would see that in comparison to Barabbas, Jesus was no big deal, that he was no big threat of, 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 as the chief priest made him out to be. And then the crowd would have pity on him and ask for his release. But the chief priests and the temple servants were behind the crowd, stoking the fire, provoking them, coaxing them to choose Barabbas over Jesus. And so Pilate was forced to try a different tactic. If he couldn't drum up pity for Jesus by making him look more dignified than Barabbas, maybe he could drum up dignity for Jesus by stripping him of his dignity altogether. Or, or drum up pity, excuse me, for Jesus I don't think we like to linger on this scene very much because if we really considered what was happening here, it would be hard to stomach. 
But we need, to, we need to pause here for a moment and consider this scene as one of total humiliation. This flogging that Jesus received was most likely the first of two. This one being the lesser of the two. The second one being as he's led away to be crucified. That, w- that would be the one with the cat of nine tails where there's flesh-ripping bone fragments on the whip and things like that. This, is, this, this beating might be lesser, but it's, it's still a beating, right? It's, it's far more than a slap on the wrist. This is assault. This is like swell, swelling up your face. I mean, they're punching God in the face. They're slapping him in the face here, right? This mock crown, it was probably woven together from the thorns of the date palm. We've talked about the date palm before. Remember back in chapter 12 when, uh, when, when uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey and they laid the palm branches and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of the Jews. They got those branches from the date palm. This tree that, that, that initially they used to wave and, and lay before Jesus in blessing now is a source of pain. Him. These thorns could grow up to 12 inches long. Think about that for a minute. This crown, or so called, that they wove and they pressed down onto Jesus' head wasn't just uncomfortable, this was torture. This was torture. He, it, but it was, it was even more than that, right? Because uh, let, let's. let's Let's not forget what John continues to do in his gospel is there's always something behind the thing, right? There's always something deeper that that we can see that's going on here. If we go back to Genesis 3, we're reminded that thorns were a product of Adam's sinful insurrection against God in the Garden of Eden. Now, just a few days before this horrific scene here was, was that triumphal entry that we just talked about. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the blessings of the people. Now, the perfectly innocent king of the Jews was being crowned with the curse of sin. Let's not miss here, behind this scene of horror, these glimpses of redemption. He was crowned with our curse. Pilate may have been trying to release Jesus, this imprisoned Jesus, because he knew that Jesus was innocent, but Jesus had come to release sinners because he knew that we were guilty. He's in control. But John uses, or or, uh, when Pilate brought Jesus back outside and stood him before the crowd of the, the Jews all bruised and, and battered and bloodied and dressed like a king, right? He wasn't dressed like a king when, when they, he took him in there. Now he brought him out like a king, and that's just got to light that fire under them even more so, mocking them. He said, here's the man. Here he is. He was basic, basically saying, look, this guy's no threat to Rome. Look at what you did to him. But again, this was not an exercise in compassion on Pilate's part. He was degrading Jesus and mocking the Jews at the same time. He was looking for this way to sort of stay neutral and yet give this appearance of power. But John uses Pilate's words to point his readers yet again to the deeper irony. Here is the man, Pilate said. Remember how John opened his gospel? The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Here is the man. This is the word made flesh who came and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And he was revealing his glory as the one and only son from the father. Through this pain and ridicule and humiliation that Pilate used to try to portray Jesus as a nobody. John is telling us this is not a nobody. This is the son who came to reveal the father. Let's keep going. Verse 6. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, You take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. 
We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and he asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. Now things are really starting to escalate in the back and forth between Pilate and the chief priests. Pilate's second attempt to garner pity for Jesus and have him released was also another failure. He's sort of back on his heels here, right? And the chief priests and the temple servants took one look at Jesus dressed like a king and they doubled down on wanting him to be put to death. Pilate stated his position then for a third time, the verdict. I find no grounds to charge him. He's innocent. And again, this not guilty verdict should have settled the matter, but Pilate wanted to toy with the Jews. And so he told them to take Jesus and crucify him, knowing full well that they had no power in their own to do that. He's just toying with them and using Jesus as this puppet to do that. But as governor, Pilate was not only responsible for keeping the peace, he was also responsible for upholding the local Jewish law. He, he might not have been a Jew, but he actually had to pay attention to the way they lived and govern that. And the chief priest called him out on that responsibility in verse 7. Hey, we have a law. We have a law. Anybody that blasphemes says they're equal to God, they have to die. And they said Jesus was guilty of that because, because he made himself to be the son of God. He, he claimed equality with God, and that was an offense uh, deserving of death according to their law. They, they tried that initially, right? And, and then Pilate said, nope. And then they went to the political thing, and, and Pilate said, nope. And then they came back now to this, but they sort of tied it into to Pilate's obligation. Hey, this is a law that you need to pay attention to. You can't just overlook this. Your governor, you need to help us. And that, that accusation that he made himself to be the son of God and he was deserving of death, that accusation brought Pilate's insecurities and his fear to the surface. Many Roman officials in that day were very superstitious so, that, so when the Jews accused Jesus of making himself to be the son of God, Pilate wasn't concerned about their charge of blasphemy so much as he was concerned about the potential reality that this man that he had just flogged was actually some sort of divine being. Again, he's not, he's not going in fully to the, to the Jewish religion, but he knows there, there might be something more to this guy. And now he's done something that probably he shouldn't have. And so he's freaking out about it. But when he went back inside and questioned Jesus about it, Jesus remained silent because Pilate had already shown that he wasn't actually interested in the truth. What is truth? What is truth? But John doesn't want us to miss the truth here. What the chief priests were accusing Jesus of is exactly what John wants the readers of his gospel to understand and to believe. This is what he's, the, he gives us this purpose in, his, in chapter 20, right? All these things we, are written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John keeps reminding us over and over, these people are speaking more than they realize. They're speaking more than they realize. But Jesus wasn't speaking at all, and, and that didn't sit well with Pilate. So let's look at verse 10. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Now, Pilate was desperately clinging to any semblance of control that he thought that he still had in this moment. Don't you know that I'm the one with the authority, Jesus? Your life is in my hands. I can either set you free or I can condemn you to death. But the only person that Pilate was convincing was himself. And we've already seen him try to release Jesus three times, right? I mean, he's made a lot of effort. Don't you know I have the authority to do that? All right, where is it? Show us. Three times you tried, Pilate, and three times you failed. 
And when Jesus finally did open his mouth again, it was to tell Pilate where real authority comes from. He was essentially saying, listen, Pilate, you think you're in control, but you're not. My heavenly father is in control. My heavenly father is in control. Jesus had come to drink the father's cup, remember? That's what he told Peter as he was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was the cup of God's wrath against sin. Jesus had something to accomplish, and nobody would stand in his way. What did it mean, though, when he told Pilate, this is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin? That can be a little confusing. Well, first we need to understand that Pilate, or that Jesus didn't say that Pilate didn't sin or that Pilate had no responsibility for what was happening. Pilate's not let off the hook here. But Pilate's role in this entire thing was more of a passive one, and it was Judas, it was especially Caiaphas and the chief priests who actively plotted and carried out this plan to betray Jesus and hand him over to be crucified. But regardless of who had the greater sin, it was God who had the greater plan. And this is what Jesus wanted Pilate to understand. This is what John wants us to understand. Jesus knew that no amount of earthly power and authority could stop him from accomplishing what the Father had given him to do. He's in control. Always. Let's keep going. Verse 12. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself king, a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and he sat down in the judge's seat in a place called the stone pavement, but in Aramaic, uh, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover and it was about noon. So we're into Friday now. And he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? Can't you just hear like the, antagon, the, the, the antagonizing there? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And then he handed him over to be crucified. Now, this last section may be dripping with the most amount of irony here. This whole time, Pilate had been flaunting his control over the chief priest, but every time he tried to exert his authority and release Jesus, who was it that exploited his weakness and stopped him from doing that? It was the chief priests. It was the ones he thought he had control over. In this last instance, they pressed him about his already rocky relationship with Caesar. Caesar's the emperor. He's the king of Rome. Pilate, you really want to do this? You want to let this guy go? We know where Caesar lives. Essentially, they told him that if he released Jesus, he was actually the one that was a threat to Rome. And they were willing to go to Caesar to show that they were more loyal to Caesar than Pilate was. Imagine that. Imagine that. Jews claiming loyalty to Caesar just to get Pilate out of there. And so Pilate finally gave in, and after already pronouncing Jesus innocent three times, I find no grounds for charging him, what does he do? He sits down on the judgment seat and gives his official verdict guilty. I'm going to charge him anyway. And this was the verdict that the chief priests were looking for. But Pilate was ever the antagonizer. He knew that he had been bested by their threat to go to Caesar, but he wanted the last laugh, and so he presented Jesus as the only king they would ever have, right? Like, oh, you want me to cru crucify your king? This is your only shot. Look at him. He's your best option. You sure you want me to dispatch this guy? That only made him even more angry. Here's your king, he told them. And their response revealed perhaps the worst hypocrisy and the saddest irony in this whole passage. Their king... Their Messiah was standing right there in front of them, the one they'd been waiting for, for generation after generation after generation. He really was their king. Pilate spoke better than he knew right there. Here is your king. And they wanted this king dead. John told us in chapter one, he came to his own. 
and his own people did not receive him. And what's worse, they had just falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy, and now they were the ones that were actually committing it themselves. We have no king but Caesar. The Jews were claiming allegiance to someone other than God. And not just that, they were denying everything that God had promised them. All the hopes of the Messiah, all the promises of of God's redemption and deliverance, they were denying in that moment when they said Caesar is our only king, they were denying the kingship of God himself. And with these words, they sent the Son of God, their Messiah and the true king over all creation off to be crucified. But in all of this, we need to see that Jesus was not a helpless man whose fate was being tossed around like a rag doll between Pilate and the chief priest. No, he is the sovereign king who was patient, patient, enduring humiliation and pain and injustice in order to carry out, to bring the Father's plan of redemption to fulfillment Though he was God, Paul tells us in Philippians, he didn't consider that something to be exploited. Jesus didn't use his position to gain things for himself. He came and he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, Paul says, even to death on a cross. We need to see that God is the one with all the authority. We need to see that our lives are in his hands. We need to see that only he can either set us free or condemn us to death. The things that Pilate claimed, only Jesus can actually do. The reality is that we've all sinned against this king by rejecting his rule in our lives. And we're all deserving of death because we are all insurrectionists. But Jesus came And he lived a life of perfect loyalty, perfect obedience to the Father. And then he willingly, we need to understand this, willingly, not not just being led away helplessly, but willingly laid his life down, willingly died in the place of traitors and sinners like you and me in order to secure forgiveness for us that we could never earn on our own. He died on our cross. I need to think about that more often. He didn't just die on the cross. He died on my cross. And the Father rose him from the dead on the third day to prove that his payment for sin was enough. And here's the beauty of it all. When we put our trust in Christ, when we put our hope in his life and his death and his resurrection, when we listen to his voice and we believe his testimony, you know what the Father does? He looks on us and he declares, I find no grounds to charge you. Isn't that amazing? I find no grounds for charging you. And here's, just to add like even more on top of that, nobody and nothing will ever be able to change his mind. And nobody and nothing will ever be able to, con- to coerce him into thinking otherwise. Would you really want to walk away from grace like that? Maybe you came in today and, and you're still the king of your kingdom. There's only room for one on the throne. And he's the king of grace, the king of glory. Why not turn from your sin and and trust in Jesus? Why not confess your insurrection and run to him? As believers in Christ, we ought to be the, the most ready to do that, to confess. Yeah, I was guilty, but I'm not anymore because Jesus took my guilt. Even as people of the truth, we still struggle with, with maintaining our allegiance to Christ though, right? We know that his kingdom is not of this world and yet we're still, we're still prone to chase after those, those lesser kingdoms. We sang that this morning. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, right? Prone to leave the God I love. We say 
we have no king but Jesus, but sometimes we live as if we have no king but our favorite political candidate. Or we have no king as, uh, 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 but, the, but job security and, and financial stability. Or we have no king but good health and a comfortable life. Or we have no king but the persona that we want others to see from us because we're terrified if they know the truth. I'm personally prone to live like I have no king but self-sufficiency. I'd just rather do it myself. How about you? What is it for you? What kings and kingdoms do you chase after? Again, though, we're not going to be uh, leave ourselves here in this, in this uh, guilt. This is the Spirit's conviction to remind us of our, our continual need for Jesus and to point us back to him. And here's the reality. No matter what lesser kings and kingdoms we're prone to chase after, this passage right here reminds us that Jesus is never in fear of losing his throne. He's never in fear of losing his throne and that it also reminds us that he has come to us in grace and love as the king who has laid down his life for us so that we can truly live for him no matter how many times we fail. He's given us the grace to keep going. We sang that at the beginning this morning. I'm gonna do these things by grace and grace alone. So when we're guilty yet again of giving our allegiance away to someone or something else, the king of glory and grace who sits on the judge's seat does not look down at us and go, you had your chance and you blew it. No, he beckons us to come closer to the throne of grace and to find the help that we so desperately need from the one who's already removed all of our guilt, the king who is in control. Jesus is the only sovereign king. Is he your king? It's exhausting to try to keep up the appearance of control, isn't it? The sense of helplessness that we feel is actually a kindness of God. It's a gift of grace from the sovereign king so that we learn not to trust in ourselves, but instead to grow in our dependence upon him, in our confidence in him. We don't have to pretend. Praise God. We don't have to pretend like we have everything under control because we can trust the one who really does. He's not going to abuse that authority. So may we be all be honest about our helplessness and look to the one who has met our every need because we truly have no king but Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in your son. We thank you that you are a good and gracious king who rules in justice and in mercy, who governs all things according to your good purpose for the praise of your glorious grace. And we pray this morning that you would lift our eyes yet again, lift our hearts yet again to this king of glory, to this king of grace, who is seated firmly on the throne and declare yet again our allegiance to him, knowing that we can't even do that apart from the grace that we so desperately need and trusting that that grace has been provided and will be provided over and over to us in Jesus Christ, our king. We love you, and we pray all this in his name. Amen.